0: Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you so much for listening wherever you are in the UK and the rest of the world. And as ever in our time together, we have got one hell of a lot to cram in, in the rather sort of dark context in which we are all gathering these days. If it's okay with you, I'll make some reflections on the global crisis triggered by the situation in Ukraine, and reflect on the potency of subjective views of the past, national identity, all the things that seem to come together when war takes place in a sort of bleak, bleak situation, going beyond Ukraine. I mean, I've never been to Ukraine, so you know, let's leave that to those who are there and who know the area really well. There are a lot of people commenting on this situation from a distance, including me. So I'm going to reflect on those broader themes, beginning with Putin, but widening it. Um, And then there's some fantastic questions from all of you on a range of issues, of course, including what's happening uh, in Ukraine. Uh, so yeah, that's uh, that's what's going to happen if that's okay with all of you. Before then, just uh, a, a couple of moments to thank those of you who've signed up to Patreon and for your election ideas. I've got a big announcement on that front, which is the next bonus podcast. Um, and it's going to be the next one, the 1983 election which some of you proposed, and I've chosen it because, first of all, it gives me a chance in a way to combine two at the same time, because to make sense of the 1983 election, you need to look at the 1979 election. The seeds of 83 were sown very speedily in the aftermath of 79 and in my view you know there's talk all the time about oh, politics now it's never there hasn't been like this for a long long time it's so seismic and brexit and everything i'm talking about british politics for a second before we go global but in my view the period between 79 and 1983 were the most seismic of my lifetime anyway I'm only 21, so, you know, we're spanning a relatively short period. Now I can't be 21. I wouldn't have been, would I have been born in 1983? Oh, anyway, what happened then was extraordinary. A formal schism of one of the two major UK political parties. The rise of Thatcherism, turning the Tory party into a party of sort of ideological purity, almost, in her advocacy early on uh, for monetarism the split in the Tory party at the time between wets and dries, a war in the Falklands. That might come up when I reflect on nationalism, the past, and how we're all shaped by these things uh, in today's talk. And then we had this dramatic election, which cemented Thatcherism. Michael Foote, the Labour leader. Many thought it would be Dennis Healy. Anyway, that will be your bonus podcast, and it's coming out next monday if you're on patreon if you're not on patreon you can subscribe by clicking the link in the blurb to this podcast and also um, just googling rock and roll politics patreon there are various kind of tiers on that front uh, those who put forward further ideas just very quickly before we all get together for this week kathy mias uh she's interested in 64 and 66 she reminds me, I didn't know them actually, of the slogans that Labour used, two elections that they won. Uh, Labour don't win elections very often. In 64, it was, let's go with Labour. OK, um, they, they, they won with it, but only just. And then 66, when they won a landslide, it was, you know, Labour government works. What a technocratic, safe slogan, in a way. Um, but that won them a landslide. So yeah, and uh, Kathy also was interested in the 2017 snap election, where she too offered that sort of kind of prudent message you're safe with me kind of thing and it didn't work at all yeah well th- there too to be considered uh david o'leary uh suggests another theme uh when i've done with elections best political biographies or and this is really interesting how prime ministers present themselves in their memoirs That is a rich, rich theme. Uh, Thank you, David. I'm going to revisit that. Uh, Mark Donoghue has an election idea. Now, this is really interesting with big lessons, especially for Labour, but also for the Conservatives. The 1959 election, post-Suez, where the Tory party for a time had its confidence knocked, were deeply divided over a war that went wrong and and all the implications for Britain's place in the world. And yet it won under Harold Macmillan, not, of course, Eden. He got out of the situation, and Macmillan led them to victory. They still won after Suez. And Labour came unstuck on its tax policy, a familiar way that Labour comes unstuck. I hadn't thought of 1959, Mark, but that has inspired me. That may well come up. And Jordan Fleming from Poland, and Jordan, incidentally, Uh, Is an hour from the Ukraine border, he writes, uh, suggests for the Patreon long-form interviews. I love doing long-form interviews, uh, Jordan. It it, it is the thing I enjoy doing more than anything else, actually. And that's a good idea. I have to think about it, uh, who to get. Because one of the problems with interviews these days is, I was talking to Andrew Marr about it the other day. I think you see the Sunday interview program. I think he's got out at a good time is in crisis because interviewees of that sort are so ubiquitous now. You know, and, oh, let's cancel everything on Sunday morning to watch Quasi Kwarteng three times on Sky, the BBC, and, you know, whatever else. Uh, there are so many Sunday outlets. But, you know, you can see Quasi Kwarteng all week if you want to. It's thinking of the interesting long-form interviewees. Uh, let me know, Jordan, what you reckon. Okay, uh, more questions to come uh, a bit later on, uh, really interesting ones about what's happening in Ukraine and so on. But isn't it interesting, the degree to which people are conditioned by their upbringing, their wholly distorted view of the past, of which Putin is a bloody example There are many other examples, and I'm going to come to a few of them. But his upbringing and his character combined, presumably, to make him utterly brutal in his willingness to kill and his apparent indifference to bloodshed on an appalling level. Beyond that very, very important distinction... He is typical in being conditioned by his past and the way it distorts his views of things. I found it really interesting. You know that uh, rambling speech he made uh, last Monday? Uh, It was just before the live Kings Play show, and I was starting to watch it to sort of use it as a peg to brief the audience about what was going on. And he started at 6.30, and I was on at 7.00. And he had just got up to Lenin. And uh, what was revealing was it was rambling in some respects but the degree to which he chose to read the past in a certain way. And he blamed Lenin for the de-Russification of the Ukraine, as far as I could tell. And separately has said many times that the collapse of the Soviet Union was a global calamity and you can understand not understand but you can see the way his mind works which is that the Soviet Union which he was brought up in and he was therefore a victim of its propaganda as well as an agent of it he came to believe and see as an entity of strength, and from his perspective, a I suppose a form of benevolence is the wrong word, because he's not interested in benevolence, but a form of might, which of course it was. And he watched its collapse with horror, anger, and a form of bewilderment, because clearly he on one level, has convinced himself that Ukraine is really Russian, and that what he is trying to do, although what is in front of his eyes is different to what he chooses to see, is turn these independent states, which he cannot really cope with, that notion of independence from Russia, because he was brought up with them all in one mighty union, back into that mighty union, and uh, become part of Russia again. And it is fascinating watching him try and rationalize uh, what he is doing. That Ukraine is basically Russia. It was only blown apart by Lenin and then Stalin after the war and all the rest of it. And so he would argue with some of the other states. He's already done it with uh, Crimea and so on. And so here is a figure shaped by the past and also a view of identity. Isn't it interesting that we are living again in an era where national identity or a view of it, his view that Russia should extend really back to the terrain of the Soviet Union, trumps everything? In his case, trumps human life. Um, He would have known the outcome of an invasion of this sort would be death on a terrible, terrible scale. It didn't stop him at all. There will be many other consequences, that famous word. Of course, there will be. He would have known the sanctions that have been imposed. He would have calculated that whatever the economic cost, the sense of identity, Recovering his view of the past and turning it into the present mattered more. And in a way, we are all conditioned by our past. It doesn't mean that we have these tyrannical reactions to it. But I've been fascinated by the whole debate on the West, too. It was very interesting when I think it was Ben Wallace, the defense secretary, in the build up to the invasion was implicitly critical of macron and french attempts at diplomacy and who did he quote it was chamberlain he said there is a whiff of neville chamberlain and appeasement in the air and british politicians both parties have been wholly conditioned by their pasts too not with the terrible terrible development of a putin figure and anyway the parallels cannot be made because they function in democracies and putin doesn't but in the way their paths have shaped them not least in the build-up to conflicts of which that's a classic example of course macron was right to test the space that putin might be able to move into to avoid an invasion perhaps there was no space perhaps uh, his concerns about NATO moving eastwards uh, was a front. Um, although I suspect in Putin's mind, he does see NATO as an aggressive force, not a benevolent one, one dominated by one country, the United States. And of course, on that front, he is absolutely right. NATO uh, is Wholly dominated by the united states and if the united states want to go it alone as they were contemplating doing in iraq they will do so anyway back to the past in britain he, i think he's also uh, ben wallace cited the crimean war you know so kind of conditioned by certain things but there's no doubt in britain uh, the fear of appearing like chamberlain looms large I think one of the factors with Tony Blair going unequivocally uh, into alliance with the United States over Iraq was all kind of factors from the past and perhaps misreadings of the past, for sure, Chamberlain. For sure, Suez, where Britain discovered it could not operate as a solo power anymore. It was dependent on the United States. For sure, Thatcher and the Falklands weighed on Blair's shoulders as he made his moves, because it was very interesting with the Falklands. The next by-election after the Falklands' war uh, was in Beaconsfield, and Labour's candidate was Tony Blair. Now, it was a safe Tory seat, but Blair told Robin Cook, who came to visit Uh, Blair during the by-election to help him campaign, that Blair was taken aback by the number of people saying how much they admired Margaret Thatcher as a result of her victory in the Falklands War. She was a strong leader after a period of weakness. And I think he carried with him an assumption that a Labour Prime Minister, as a test of strength, must always back America in its military conflicts. And so in a very, of course, different way to Putin, uh, he was influenced by the past. And incidentally, one of those who regarded the war as illegal, breaking international law, was at the time Keir Starmer. So there are layers of complexity Uh, when, of course, rightly, Putin is condemned uh, for breaking international law. I mean, he's he's never really adhered to it. But there are many who regard Iraq in the same light. Uh, Now, of course, it's different. One was, uh, you know, an invasion by democratically elected people who got it through their various parliaments and congress and what have you. But the images of shock and awe uh, on the opening nights of the war Uh, in Iraq, there are some uh, echoes uh, in terms of imagery with this terrible, appalling situation in Ukraine. And on it goes. The Johnson government almost bragged about threatening to break international law over the Irish protocol that it itself had proclaimed as a triumph. And the British exceptionalism that drove Brexit was a product partly of a distorted way of teaching history at the various posh private schools that many of the leading Brexiteers attended. Eton there was a fascinating piece into the London Review of Books about, uh, from someone who went to Eton about the way history is taught in Eton. And it is a sort of heroic portrayal of Britain at every junction. And yet, that ill equips them for making judgments, ironically, about what is in the British interest when they have this view of a kind of British exceptionalism. So they too, of course, in a very different way, have been conditioned by their pasts in a way that distorts And of course, that applies to many other countries too. And it is so interesting that a lot of us have been brought up on British general elections where economic interest has dominated. Which party would make us feel better off was a key question in British general elections. But at the moment, we're living through a period and it's dangerous where issues about identity nationalism terrain absolutely trump economic interests Uh, brexit being a minor example compared to uh, the putin view that you uh, try to recreate the misleading distorting dream of his past about the might of the soviet union and it, it goes on, you see, it's, it's, isn't it weird that in Britain, uh, you know, Northern Ireland is part of the United Kingdom because of the past. And in fact, there's a question about that coming up, whereas many within Ireland and indeed some in Britain think Irish unification is the most logical and rational way of organizing politics in that land entity but for cultural reasons for uh many other reasons of course uh many of them bloody northern ireland remains part of the united kingdom and separately of course in scotland you have a desire for independence which again i think although they argue not is driven by matters well beyond economic where it's not at all clear that Scotland would benefit uh, from independence, far from it, I think that they wouldn't. Anyway, to return to the current situation, what I think has been encouraging in a way, I mean the sanctions won't uh, change Putin's mind at all and he would have known that these were coming and it hasn't stopped him. So driven is he by his view of the past which he wants to recreate but the tone has been quite good i think in the west i mean even even johnson who's not good on tone put out a broadcast to russian uh, people in which he made absolutely clear this was not a conflict with russian people it was to do with putin and his team who have instigated this and uh, you know of course that's the case obviously you know russian people haven't had any say in this But it's important to say it and it doesn't always get said. I remember during the Falklands War, uh, which was absolutely the consequence of the then Argentinian Junta invading the Falklands, Uh, there was a lot of talk about the Argentinians and when we played them in the World Cup, it was we will show these Argentinians, we didn't just regain the Falklands, we'll beat them at football, we didn't by the way. So it is good tonally. To make the distinction between Russian people and Putin, who is um, uh, doing this, uh, but and and so I think tonally it's right. But isn't it interesting for all the machismo uh, and hawkishness of the British government in the early phase of the build-up to this nightmare? It wasn't ready for sanction with the sanctions uh, when the invasion took place. Um, they were sort of puny, and it isn't an example from the British perspective of, uh, I think, government by journalism, where you brief with great hawkish machismo, but don't prepare. And that is, to be parochial for a second, a rather familiar pattern. Briefing, but don't prepare. But as I say, subsequently, although I think there are interesting questions about where Britain's place is in all of this, there are a few thoughts. I do it very tentatively because, as I say, I you know the, the politics of uh, Moscow needs to be analysed by experts on Putin, and the politics of Ukraine and what might follow this hell uh, is. Well, you can read every day from people there or who were there. Um, friends of mine have had to get out. But anyway. There we go. That's um, some opening thoughts. And now, over to you with some questions. We're going to begin with this, of course. Peter Landers. And Peter says that John Simpson writing today says, It all feels disturbingly like August 1968 when the USSR sent its tanks into Czechoslovakia, overthrew the government, flew the reformist leader uh, Dubček to Moscow in chains and turned the country into a prison. It was 21 years before Czechs and Slovaks threw off their chains. A year later, I was in a conference of many bright, young people from across the country. No, I still have no idea why I was there. Sounds like a very interesting thing to gatecrash, Peter, if you gatecrash. Now, I'm sure you were invited. And one of the star guests was the deputy ambassador of the Soviet Union. He took questions. So I asked him to justify the invasion of Czechoslovakia. And he said the people wanted the help of the Soviet army and cheered as the tanks entered Prague. Prague. Despite being a shy 18-year-old, I wasn't having that. And we had a brief exchange on the legitimacy of invasion. Later, the conference organizers described me as a Maoist. (laughs) That's an interesting definition for you challenging that particular interpretation of um, that uh, invasion of Prague. I later studied at the notoriously radical LSE. Well, that would have reinforced your Maoism, I'm sure, Peter. More than 50 years on, the ex-Soviet thug running Russia is using the same old Stalinist playbook to crush Ukraine. In the long run, the competing attraction of liberal democracy will defeat Russian imperialism. But we seem so surprised by these events, and that we seem so surprised is a tragedy. World events, over which we have even less control than we did when I was young, mustn't distract us also, from domestic issues and i hope to make the next king's play show yeah well thank you yeah I, well I, I we are surprised on one level there were of course a lot of briefings coming out of washington and indeed london that this was going to happen and it, i thought it was interesting that they decided to brief um that this was the case i suppose that if it hadn't happened they could then claim that their threats had stopped it yeah here we go again as you suggest and there is a degree of powerlessness to it for all the sanctions that will be imposed and what an interesting vignette from your conference in Czechoslovakia very brave of you to challenge the theory of being liberated but again there are echoes I'm not saying it's the same but you know I think One of Blair, apart from being burdened by the past uh, Blair, not being Chamberlain, being Thatcher-like, not being like Labour in the 80s, which was seen as weak on defence and anti-American, all those burdens of the past. He did think, for example, with Iraq, that people would feel liberated, in inverted commas, whereas being invaded is not necessarily uh, going to be seen always with gratitude, even if... The idea is to liberate them from a tyrant, and that we know what followed in Iraq. Anyway, thank you very much, Peter. Now, Henry writes about uh, Northern Ireland, which I just uh, mentioned, which is, uh, well, Ireland, actually, uh, which is is interesting. In terms of this theme of people's perceptions of who they are, defined by where they are and the state— and the terrain of the state, and and, and all of this, uh, which is partly, I say, based on the past. It's partly wholly reasonable. It's partly irrational. Look at the UK's love of the monarchy, which I I, I can never understand. I, you know, I don't, I'm not talking about the individuals; the institution. It seems to me wholly irrational, but it's wrapped up in a sense of who they decide they are. Anyway, back to Henry uh i'm really enjoying the podcast oh thank you henry thank you very much you said a couple of weeks ago that analogies with the 19th century didn't really work yeah i can't remember the context of that henry but yeah anyway let's let's continue with your point point. and i was wondering if i could challenge that i'm thinking of the effect on politics of the irish nationalists who emerge in 1874 as a huge electoral coalition a bit like the SNP emerged in 2015. Yeah, it was a fascinating period of Irish and indeed British history with Parnell managing to bring the various disparate nationalist groups together fleetingly. After 1874, the Liberals really struggled to win elections, especially after Gladstone committed them to Irish home rule and put them on the Irish side of the argument – as for bigoted English voters. How dangerous do you think that the SNP are to the chances of Labour ever attaining a majority for similar reasons, as every time Labour came close to to the polls, the Tories can play on English voters' uh, worries about an SNP coalition. In 1922, the Irish issue was partly resolved through Irish independence. Can the Scottish issue be resolve for Labour without Scottish independence. If it can be, could the SNP be a Labour version of the CSU in Bavaria, or even Ulster Unionists for the Tories in Northern Ireland? There is no way, Henry, uh, Labour will go certainly into the next election with any form of, even hint of, Commitments to a deal with the SNP uh, and uh, any hint of support for independence. And on that, they are right for the reason you suggest. I remember vividly a key moment in the 2015 election, which appeared to be close at the time, and it was very early on, uh, when the Conservatives put out a clever poster, a big photo of Alex Salmond, who was then. Uh, Uh, first minister in Scotland, with uh, Ed Miliband in his top jacket pocket. And that image was very powerful, and uh, the Times put it on its front page. The Times, which um, uh, lapses into uh, pretty partisan uh, news reporting at election times and pro-conservative, kind of did it as a news story. It was a Tory poster, Uh, but I think it did have an impact – and so Labour were hit with a double whammy in 2015. They lo- lost a load of seats in Scotland. And yet in England, there was uh, an assumption that uh, Ed Miliband would do a deal with the SMP. So on that basis, Starmer can't go near any of that. In the longer term, I think you raise interesting points. There, if the SMP bandwagon continues... In other words, if they continue to win elections with uh, overwhelming numbers, at some point this will have to be addressed again. And um, in what form? It's very difficult to predict, but there will be consequences either way if the SNP continue to perform well. A Westminster government, in the end, cannot resist forever. And then what happens with a referendum um, on independence For a second time, we just don't know. But there will be then all kinds of things. But I don't think, even in a hung parliament after the next election, Starmer will have the space to do any deal with the SNP. He will challenge them to prop up a Labour government informally, you know, as part of the opposition, uh, by not bringing it down. Um, because they could still be the strongest third party in terms of seats, and say, all right, if you bring us down, Scottish voters will note that you're propping up a Scottish uh, Tory government. These are multi-layered issues, as nationalism always is in whatever form it takes. Anyway, thank you uh, very much, uh, Henry, for your very kind comments. Hope you're you're well and uh, flourishing. I'm going to go to Venetia Kane now, who has a thought about the lockdown parties. Why is everyone so hung up on whether they were parties or not? It was a non-work gathering of any nature indoors, and these were forbidden. And one could only meet up socially with one other person outdoors at that stage. So whether these things had cheese and wine and could be defined as parties or not is irrelevant. I guess that Sue Gray has concluded the same thing, and hopefully the Met will do so likewise. I reckon Sue Gray has concluded that, Venetia. You can tell from her so-called update that was surprisingly scathing. The Met, I've no idea. We've had some expert briefings from our uh, brilliant solicitor, listener, who gives updates uh, most weeks on the Met investigation. But there is this issue in my king's place thing i kind of mischievously put the case for boris johnson and that you could argue from his perspective everything happens in this odd life that he leads in number 10 Uh, is work i'm sure he doesn't see them as parties as i've said before he doesn't like parties and he wouldn't have sat down there. "Ah, let's have a party let's invite all my friends from eton and oxford there wouldn't be many by the way you know so he would have seen them i'm sure all as work related they were essential workers you know and if they had a drink and all the rest of it it was all work 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 they were in most people were at home they were all having to come into number 10 which was his house and work i can see the ambiguity you know it shouldn't get him off um because any other prime minister would have noted the ambiguity and gone for the absolute rigidity of the rules that he had set uh he imagined Theresa May saying oh yeah i'll come out and have a drink with my work colleagues she would know uh, so would all the others i could see the case for the defence as he's going to make it now let's over to the police i agree with you i think um the grey report will be damning thank you venetia jonathan roberts a long time uh listener thank you jonathan and um, before that column reader yeah these are kind of partly columns aren't they on air in air what what is a podcast on air anyway and planning to come to king's place now we are free yeah we're free you're free to come and and it's all very healthy in there touchwood I listened to the podcast uh, walking through the glorious Hertfordshire countryside around Hitchin on my daily walk. Yeah, that's interesting. I think I'm going to take a train to Hitchin and go walking. I might see you there because I think there's some nice countryside around there. Dare I pick you up on the oft-repeated but inaccurate comment that the coalition, this is the, we're talking back to UK politics here, uh, Well, we have been already with the other questions, uh, that the coalition increased university fees. This isn't true. The coalition took the results of the Brown Review set up by Labour, which responded to concerns from universities that existing fees were too low. The review didn't recommend a cap, Simply that the existing fee three thousand a year be removed. The coalition set a new cap of nine thousand. The universities promptly, across the board, increased fees to nine thousand. At the twenty ten general election, all parties had approached on how universities should be funded, from graduate taxes to general taxation. We can only reflect where fees would now be had there been no cap and universities set their own level, greater than 9,000, I suggest. Jonathan adds, I'm a Lib Dem, I thought you might be, with this defence of what went on. And it's plainly unfair that the manifesto commitment to remove fees in the event of winning is used as a stick to beat us when we lost. Coalitions require compromises. Jonathan I think the cap was put far too high at 9,000 a 300 percent increase in student fees making them I think the highest in in Europe Uh, you know it was too much but you are right to say that without a cap they would have been higher because universities would have been unregulated in effect Um, but 9,000 was far too big a leap and although you lost that election, Jonathan. The pledge to abolish uh, tuition fees, which you know I think probably was the wrong thing to do, um, but you did it. And Nick Clegg should have stood his ground knowing that it was so totemic. There were politics involved with this as well. So I kind of disagree with you. And I think Osborne gave Nick Clegg the opportunity of voting against just to... Um, uh maintain his uh pre-election uh, consistency and coherence and nick clegg who behaved with great naivety i think in the coalition era should have taken him up on that just for the sake of your party in my view but let me know what well obviously you disagree thank you jonathan uh uh on to john barnes love your podcast oh thank you i wonder if i'm your only listener in mozambique uh, actually uh john there are thousands in mozambique who tune in every week No, i think you might be the only one to be honest i can't claim to listen while doing some forms of healthy exercise or the laundry to for new listeners two common pastimes in this podcast i normally listen to you in bed late at night or early in the morning that's a lot of great image in mozambique uh lying there listening to our reflections together okay so his question i've been of the opinion for some time that given the size of the conservatives majority the dominance of the smp in scotland the boundary commission's redrawing of constituency boundaries and the seats lost in the red wall it's mathematically almost impossible for labor or any other opposition party to win the next election it wouldn't be any other only labor can win the next election apart from the Conservatives. What do you think? Short of more Tory scandals, what scenarios do you see in which Labour could win? What do you think about an anti-Tory electoral pact? My fear is that the Tories and their friends in the media will present this as opposition parties trying to rig the election. Completely agree with you, John. All the best from... Now, I haven't got my reading glasses on. Is it Matola? you are, just outside Maputo, in Mozambique uh so oh thank you John well I hope you're having a good time in Mozambique why are there? is there it work reasons I assume I don't know let, let us know on a future exchange um I completely agree with you about a pact uh there are many problems with the pact it's not going to happen although quite a few listeners uh, want it to happen it won't and and you're right it will be portrayed in the media not only as a rigging the election but as a sign of weakness uh, that uh, none of the other parties have any confidence that they can win, and weakness is is a sin, uh, I, you know, in British politics. So it's not going to happen. Um, there are informal sort of things going on, as we've discussed before, uh, sort of anti-Tory informal uh, discussions, but nothing uh, formal. I'm not sure uh, you are right to predict it's impossible for Labour to win uh, next time it is mountainous because of Scotland let's see how this governing party in its fourth term continue Um, there's certainly enough ammunition for Labour to tear them apart and incidentally on uh, on Russia too Um, you know the sort of Russification of London is a huge issue now, it might about to be de-Russified, but Tory donors, uh, relations with Russia in all kinds of way have been a big factor in British politics and in the economy of London. Yeah, that, That's another issue as well. Um, but there's certainly plenty of material for Labour if it can get its act together you know hung parliament biggest party in a hung parliament i do think that's possible but I, they should aim to win with an overall majority they should aim to do that every time that i say they're they're not very good at it um but it won't take the form of electoral pact for reasons you suggest john thank you uh denise willier says she's detecting labor getting its act together which is um something that uh, doesn't happen very often so if you're right uh denise it's it's interesting i think you're right the, the politics is symphonic that that it has to have all parts have to come together you know and in opposition that means a shadow cabinet being very effective its leader having all the artistry of leadership um you can't miss out any of it from a capacity to communicate to linking values to policies that are then explained via the media to a wider electorate and you have to do that with quite often a hostile media etc Denise says, are they doing enough to keep public anger firmly trained on the Tories, not just Johnson, while showing that they have sensible plans to address the issues these multitudinous scandals throw up? That's a good point, because these scandals, you know, the domestic scandals, they have implications about policy for the future. So the challenge for Labour is to do two things, expose the scandals, mock the scandals, despair at the scandals convey anger at the scandals but also the policy implications for the future then denise adds my formerly tory voting mother would say yes about labor getting its act together her mantra has gone from i'm not a labor person to i'm not a conservative she now gives yvette cooper the time of day she couldn't stand up previously and loves lisa nandy Angela Rayner and David Lammy. She's warming to Keir, who she thinks is a principled person. If David Attenborough endorsed the Labour Party, she might even go out leafleting. Well, thank you, Denise. Keep us informed on your mother's... uh, It's a one-person focus group, your mother. And um, it's interesting that she's warming because, as I say, it's not there yet. But that requirement... For the whole thing to come together in a symphonic way there are there are hints of it aren't there and your mother is clearly picking them up we'll keep an eye out for David Attenborough as well uh Denise thank you uh thank you very much the next one is from James uh sorry, James, you're saying Pavosevic? I hope I've got that right. Uh, Do political parties, and specifically opposition parties, still need the support of the traditional media to win elections in the 20th century, or has that passed? Great question. And do you think that Starmer is being successful in his attempt to woo the traditional uh, media? Yeah, I think it's um, interesting. James says, bring the live show to Manchester. I will at some point. I I want to take it to more places, and it's one of the things I'm going to explore. Thank you, James. I do think it's really important, I'm afraid, uh, the traditional media. It's weird. Not many people buy newspapers these days, but they continue to have a power, almost by osmosis. And I can see now how some, some Tory papers will turn on Starmer during an election campaign, and boost Johnson. And that it's partly osmosis. People see headlines, even if they don't read the whole thing. Heavily influences the BBC, who are partly scared and just influenced by newspapers and scared of them. Uh, you know, the accusations of bias terrify them and all the rest of it. So I think they continue to be. And uh, I think he's doing well, actually, with the newspapers he needs them. They are conduits. People don't follow politics in the raw 24 hours a day. It's mediated on their behalf by the mediators. Now, there's a much wider range these days, which I think is a huge advantage for Labour because the newspapers were so partisan, still are. Um, But you've got to work with them. And that means engaging with the Sun, the Times, uh, the Mail even. Um, which he does, he gets articles published and so on. What he needs to be careful about is to assume that when you get praised in a Times editorial or whatever, that they are moving towards you. Uh, They need to be prepared for an onslaught at the general election. I doubt if, I might be wrong, but I doubt if uh, the newspapers will do what they did with Blair in 97 and Wilson in 1964 and actually... Be glowing during election campaigns. I think a lot of them will turn and do the business of the Tory Party. They'll portray him as a Remainer lawyer from North London who can't be trusted. He was in Corbyn's cabinet. He backed Corbyn to be Prime Minister, etc. And and I can see how they might turn. But he's absolutely got to try and woo them. And that was one of the things New Labour got right between ninety four to ninety seven. Alistair Campbell was central. Uh, along with Brownstein, to getting messages out to the wider electorate via newspapers that had been wholly hostile in the past, and it was a re- one of the reasons why Labour got into power. Thank you very much from the frozen north, Mark and Jane. A simple question on tuition fees. Yeah, because I I think I I kind of said that it would be wrong to go into an election, uh, pledging to stop them completely but to i think i argue to reduce them and mark fairly puts the point did you pay them and he adds i didn't i think that anybody who has a view on tuition fees should be asked that question okay yeah i didn't either it was all free but in a way i kind of think i i'm a bit of a fan of co-payments mark I, i could tell you're not because if done proportionately And I completely agree with you that absurd 300% increase. It wasn't absurd. It was an ideological act, actually. It was way too much. But co payments give a student a kind of leverage, which we never had going for free. I I used to say to my fellow students at university, you know, if we had a stake in all of this, it would be a lot better. You know, I, I went, I remember my first term at university at York, I went to. Um, The first term, I looked at the timetable, and it was one seminar a week on a Monday afternoon. I remember, two to four, and that was it. And I didn't have the self-discipline to make the most of the rest of the time. And I think we should, yeah, I'm a co-payment fan, and, and in other areas too, actually. Mark adds, I was... Disappointed recently that Jeremy Hunt, when he was being interviewed about the shortage of nurses, wasn't challenged about the fact that as health secretary, he abolished bursaries for new student nurses. Good point. That's a slightly different issue, but it's an important issue that there's a shortage for a reason. It doesn't happen by chance, and that's one of them. Uh, Mark uh, adds, not baking bread, but loving the bread and treats from the new r-i-s-e rise bakery in barnard castle mark and jane live in barnard castle i saw them at what's become uh my legendary show at uh, in barnard castle at the witham art center and oh well i'm pleased you're enjoying the bread to be honest unlike helen the baker and others oh by the way Helen the baker who uh, emails the podcast regularly she came to the live show at King's Place and gave me a loaf of her homemade bread it was it was like the kind of bread you get at one of these elite bakeries where they charge about 200 pounds for a loaf it was fantastic but I agree with you I'm with you Mark I kind of but I'm not like with Helen and some of the others who listen to this podcast baking I'm a great one for going out and buying it apart from when Helen Gives me her homemade bread. Yeah, thank you for that. And thank you, Mark. Have a good time in Barnard Castle. Our regular correspondent from France, Dominique Jour. This is quite interesting about how the French election is playing out, the presidential election. The French media were reporting that some of the main candidates were experiencing, this is for the presidential election, were experiencing difficulty in meeting the deadline for official declaration that they would run because they didn't have the required 500 sponsorship signatures required from electoral, elected officials to, to be in the race. So that's how you get in. They seem to be a, a very small hurdle for such well-known national figures to overcome, but then came a report on French culture radio which cleared up the mystery. The presenter explained that in France there are essentially two tiers of politics, the local and the national, the former having deep historical roots and widespread participation in local politics as well as the extensive network which arises from it. The national politics politicians lack a grassroots network and operate via the media. So some of these big names or prominent names being talked about uh, for presidential candidacies don't actually have a local network. A consequence of which is that they are perceived to be somewhat removed from the likes of ordinary people and ignorant of the issues that really matter locally the mayors are often elected on a non-affiliated platform and can be reluctant to align themselves with any political party or movement, including, presumably, people standing for presidential elections. This provides many mayors with a dilemma, and some have novel ways of solving the problem. Uh, One mayor, for example, a self-declared supporter of Macron, felt it wasn't good for democracy to abstain from sponsoring presidential candidates, simply because Macron already had his required 500 signatures. His solution was to place all the candidates in a box and hold a drawer. And the name he picked out was Zemmour of the extreme right, and he therefore gained uh, one additional signature, thus drawing a distinction between sponsorship and support a very French approach I would suggest and uh, Dominic said, oh, thank you for your podcast which I wait with the joy of anticipation every week. thank you very much uh yeah that's interesting it it is very French but of course the reason uh, Jeremy Corbyn became a candidate in um the labor leadership contest in 2015 was that some MPs thought the left should have a candidate in the race and so they voted for him not the same as doing a sort of kind of little kind of ballot of yourself and just plucking out a name Um, but there have been British equivalents, though not quite in that way, uh, Dominica. Um, Finally, Noah Keat, I'm writing to ask whether you could clarify why opponents of Brexit like Andrew Adonis and Michael Heseltine have argued that the departure of Boris Johnson as Prime Minister would mean a reversal of Brexit those stranger things have happened this political analysis utterly baffled me i don't think many stranger things have happened Noah. it's just wrong i'm afraid um some of us would like uh to reverse this dark dark sequence and still an underexplored one because it's a political taboo still largely brexit but his departure wouldn't end it in any way at all and if rishi sunak uh, were to get in um he, he was a Brexiteer all the way through, and Liz Truss has become a Brexiteer subsequently. So uh, we're stuck with it. And I don't quite know why they're doing it, because in a way, it kind of is an invitation of Tory, to Tory MPs to back Boris Johnson, because that parliamentary party is stuffed full of genuine, committed uh, Brexiteers, not all of them, but most. So it makes uh, no sense, really. Yeah, but I've read them saying that, And um, I'm afraid their desire to get back in, uh, uh, Andrew and uh, Michael Heseltine, uh, sometimes overwhelms their normally astute judgments. Um, Great. Well, look, thank you so much uh, for all those brilliant questions. So we're, we're gathering at a dark time globally. Let's see where we are when we all gather again uh, next week. Um, one of the things I do with the Patreon is say uh, those who have kindly joined the Patreon, our Patreon, get shout-outs, uh, th- their names. So thank you to – I'm not going to read them all. Um, I'm just going to do kind of five or six a week. Thank you to Linda Holloway, Fraser Gibb, David O'Leary, who I think uh have mentioned already has a great idea for further Patreon ideas, bonus podcasts. Gary Furs and Ian Smith, thank you all very much indeed, and more shout-outs to come. So do join in that particular one. Uh, bonus podcasts will accumulate, uh, so there will be many of them soon. But I say the next one is coming out next Monday on the 83 election backgrounded by the 79 epoch-defining election. Um, and yeah you can get it say by tapping onto a link here in the blurb for the podcast or by googling rock and roll politics patreon and by doing it you kind of make me get into a studio and it all becomes classy but i hope you get good stuff out of it as well and we will gather as ever next week and who knows um where we'll be uh, uh, but I'm sure we will all try to make sense of it all. Uh, do keep your emails coming. Uh, just a reminder of the address Steve Rick1414 at iCloud.com. S T E V E E R I C 14 at iCloud.com. Thanks so much for tuning in. Have a good time wherever you are, and let's keep watching global developments. Thank you. See you next time. Bye.